And this morning we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 3, verses 17 and following. And as we, as we walk through the text this morning, I just want to remind you that it's always important as we read God's Word to follow the train of thought um, from the author as we come to each section. Now in Philippians chapter 3, what you've seen, if you've, if you've paid attention carefully, is Paul has began by recounting his life, his previous life, as a Pharisee, a person who was trying to earn righteousness and favor with God by his life of strict legalism and law observance. And he was proud of the fact that he was so zealous for the law that he persecuted Christians. But something happened to Paul. On the road to Damascus some 30 years earlier, Paul had met Jesus and everything had changed about him. He received a new accounting system. He no longer counts his righteousness or the religious upbringing he received. He doesn't account his family heritage or his Jewish racial identity as being most valuable any longer. He no longer glories in his flesh, in the things that were his by his birth. He counts all of those things as loss. When he sets everything that this world offers on one side of the scale, and he sets Jesus on the other side of the scale, he says Jesus is more valuable than everything else. That Jesus is now everything to Paul. Jesus is everything in Paul's thinking and in Paul's living. Instead of glorying in the flesh, Paul only glories in Jesus. So everything about Paul is now defined in terms of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord and the fact that he suffered the loss of all things in light of Christ. He counts them all as rubbish. And now everything is about becoming more like Jesus. Now the good news is Paul knows he isn't perfect, right? We saw that last week. Paul knows he's not perfect, but, in, but, in, but, in, it, but that doesn't matter. Paul won't reach perfection in this life but that won't stop him from straining forward like a runner in a race. Paul is going to strain forward with Christ glorifying God's grace-empowered effort. Paul so much desires to become like Christ that he even wants to join Christ in his suffering. I, I, hope, that's, I hope that becomes part of how you pray that Lord Jesus I desire to know you so much that even if I go through suffering and pain, I want it to be with the great, to the great end of knowing Jesus more deeply, more affectionately, more personally. So in light of all of that, in light of that train of thought, Paul today is going to charge the Philippian church to strive to be like Paul in Paul's quest of being more like Jesus. He's going to call the church to imitate the life of Christ. The, sorry, he's going to call the church to imitate the life that Paul is living and the love that Paul has and the effort Paul is giving in knowing and following Jesus. Paul's life is worth imitating. Now, I want to be very careful here. Paul's life is worth imitating not because he's perfect. Amen? That's not the reason we imitate Paul. That's not the reason Paul's going to give. We don't imitate Paul because he's perfect, but because he relentlessly pursues Jesus. That's the issue. 
He will not let go of Jesus. He will hold on to the, to the very end, the hope that he has received. And everything in Paul fights for more of Jesus' love, for more of Jesus' mercy, for more of Jesus' joy, and more of Jesus' comforting presence. Paul and the apostles, we have an apostolic faith, meaning that we are to imitate the apostles and the lives they live, not because of perfection, but because of perseverance. You need to have that caveat in your mind. We don't imitate the apostles because they were perfect. They're not. We imitate their perseverance, that they took hold of Jesus and they wouldn't let go. That is the hope that we have. Now, I tell my kids, and I'll tell you to this, I tell my kids that if you can imitate the best sports players in the world, if you can do what they do, then you'll be among the best. Meaning, in basketball, if you can drive to the rim and finish like Kevin Durant, if you can shoot like Steph Curry, if you can defend like Giannis, if you can imitate the best, then you will be among the best. The same is true for other sports. We love soccer. In soccer, if you can dribble and shoot like Messi, if you can um, run and attack downhill in football like Derrick Henry, pass like Tom Brady, um, then you will be among the best. See, if you watch them and imitate them and, and emulate them, then you will learn to play the game at the highest of levels. For the Christian, we need to understand that we are called to become more like Jesus, to imitate him and to imitate those that walk with him. So, there's a truth in this. The truth is we become like those we most want to be like. That's how every marketing scheme on earth is phrased. For us, when I was a kid, it was be like Mike, right? I want to be, I want to be like Mike. I got to be like Mike. I, I might be able to shoot like him, but I can drink Gatorade like him, and I can wear Hanes boxers like him, um, and I can eat Big Macs like him, even though I don't think he ate a lot of Big Macs. But that's how marketing works. They know that there's this secret law of the soul that whatever you esteem the most and love the most, you will become like. That's important for us to remember we need to remember that. So for the Christian, there's no higher goal than to know Christ and become like him. And that's Paul's heart. He desires with everything in him to become more like Jesus. His treasure, his Lord, his strength, his comfort, and his joy. So let's look at Philippians 3, and I'm going to read the text here, beginning in verse 17. He says, brothers, writing to the church, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross, uh, enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, I want to break this into three sections, and let's go together. First, I want you to see that Paul tells us that we are to imitate and walk after faithful believers. 
imitate and walk after faithful believers. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, Paul's command here to the Philippian church basically goes like this. He's telling them to imitate Paul together as a church body in one accord. So the church, made up of individual Christians, we are called to imitate and walk after godly examples. Now I want you to notice, though, that Paul doesn't simply want them to imitate him. He says, imitate me, right? He does say that. Join in imitating me, but then notice what he adds at the end. He goes on to include other godly examples. He says, walk after the example that the church has in us. Well, who is the us? Well, the us most certainly goes beyond Paul to include people that the Philippian church would know. Namely, Epaphroditus and Timothy that he's already mentioned. Remember, Timothy's in the, in, the, in the opening of the letter, and he tells them back in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, to remember Timothy and Epaphroditus and honor those kind of men that have been examples to the church. So we are called to imitate Paul and other godly examples. Now, the foundation of Paul's command to imitate him, this is important, and other godly examples, is that we are called, all of us, to first and foremost be imitators of Christ. That is the foundation of it, right? Because none of us are perfect imitations of Christ. We have to look to a community of Christians to see the full, well-rounded presentation of Christ to us. Now, Paul tells the church at Corinth this truth. This is what he says in, uh, in, in Corinthians. He says, be imitators of me. So Paul repeats that command. Be imitators of me, even as I am of Christ. So the foundation of Paul's life is, the Christ, is Christ Jesus. So Paul says, you imitate me in so much or in so far as I imitate Jesus. Because if, we're tru if truth be told, all of us have areas and facets of our lives, we would go, I'm not as much like Jesus there as I should be. And I see others around me that are better or more mature in that area, and it will be better for you to imitate their life than mine. And so, the foundation of this command of imitating Paul is built on the foundation of us imitating Jesus first. So, here's what that looks like. If Christ lives in us, Think about this, as you are a believer, if, if you're a believer, if Christ lives in you, then Christ's love, Christ's life, the mind and heart of Jesus, Christ's sacrificial giving, Christ's sacrificial love for others will be made known through you to other people. It's got to come out, right? If Christ lives in you, then the life of Christ has to come out of you at some point. I want you to remember that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That was the, that was the, the people in, in Antioch making fun of believers. They were always known as disciples or believers or followers of the way, but not until Antioch were believers known as Christians. That was a moniker calling them little Christ, that they had imitated Jesus so faithfully and so truly that everyone in the town made fun of them and said, you're just a little Christ. We shouldn't wear that as a, we shouldn't be ashamed of that. 
We should wear that title proudly that we are like Jesus so much that we will be identified with him as we imitate him. Now, here's the rub. Our society, our society, if you watch the news or you watch television or you pay attention to social media, our society tells us to imitate the rich. It tells us to imitate the famous, the social media influencers, those that are, most of them, unconstrained by any type of morality. They're unconstrained. They have no allegiance whatsoever or commitment to Christ. They just do what they want to do. And so, in fact, I would argue that if you seek to follow Christ and live for Him, then all of these that the world says you should imitate would most likely shame you, belittle you, write you off as a religious zealot or a bigot. But that shouldn't matter to us. Our calling is to imitate and follow Jesus. And likewise, we're to follow the example of humble and faithful believers. So, here's what I would say to you. My heroes, I'll say this just as a way of personal testimony, my, my heroes as a believer shouldn't be the same heroes that non-believers have. Those shouldn't be, I shouldn't have the same heroes that the world has, right? All of us need spiritual heroes that we look up to and imitate. And my heroes are the people that I know right now that are scattered across this globe with their wives and their children faithfully loving and serving people who do not know Jesus. I choose for those people to be my heroes that have counted the cost to follow Jesus in obedience, forsaking all of the com a lot of the comforts of this world to make Jesus known to the nations. My heroes are my Sunday school teachers back in Independence, Mississippi, who taught middle school and high school for four and five decades, are still doing it today, who who were simple, faithful, loving Christian men who showed me what it meant to walk with Jesus faithfully day by day with all their warts and sores and um, struggles and fallings and failings. They showed me what it meant to walk with Jesus. I'm thankful for our Sunday school teachers here that do the same thing. Those are heroes. Paul knows, and here let me just press this home again, Paul knows that you will imitate what you love and hope to become. It's true. You can't escape it. If you love Jesus, you will imitate him. And you, and, and you will walk after the faithful examples given to you. So I'll say this, young man, young woman, teenager, hear me high school student, hear me college student, hear me middle school student, I'm speaking to you specifically right now. What you need is you need to find a Christian role model. And you need to find somebody who's further along in your journey, and you need to ask them to disciple you. You need to ask them to mentor you. You need to walk with them as they walk with Jesus. For the rest of us, I would just ask you, can you say like Paul to other believers, walk with me and imitate me as I imitate Jesus? If not, ask why not. Every Christian is called to be somebody's Paul and somebody's Timothy. That's how the Christian life works. We are called to be somebody's Paul and somebody's Timothy. You should be poured into by another and poured out into someone else. We should all be able to say to another believer, and just be able to say this to another believer, say, even, even with all my stumbling and struggling, follow me, and I'll teach you how to follow Christ, and I'll show you how to live a life of perseverance, of humble obedience, of daily repentance towards Jesus. That's what... 
that's what young Christians need to see. They don't need to see, I've got it all together. They need to see, I'm going to show you what daily repentance looks like. I'm going to show you that when I struggle and I fail, I'm going to apologize, make it right, ask for forgiveness, and move on. That's what it's going to be like to walk with Jesus. So Paul is telling us to follow those who are on the Calvary road. Follow those who have counted the cost, taken up their crosses, and are following Jesus daily with their lives. So first, imitate and walk after faithful believers. That's important. You won't grow without that. Second, second, beware of those who are enemies of the cross. So Paul says there's something worth imitating, and then there's something you need to beware of. Look what he says in verses 18 and 19. He says, for many, this is why you can't imitate them, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, and their mind is set on earthly things. So Paul just told the Philippians to imitate faithful examples. And now he gives them a warning about those around them that aren't going the same direction. They're not on the road to Calvary. In fact, they're actually enemies of the cross and the demands of being a disciple. Now, it's important for us to remember that there have always been and will always be enemies of the cross. And they've always been inside the church and outside the church. They, they always exist. So whether they're inside or outside, the same truth is at the forefront. The issue is their minds and their lives are not set on knowing and following Jesus. That's what makes them an enemy of the cross of Christ. They actually, their mind aren't, isn't set on knowing Jesus. So instead of pressing towards the goal of knowing Jesus, they set their minds and hearts on temporary and earthly things. Excuse me, my nose is running. And Paul gives here a horrifying description of what characterizes their lives. But notice what Paul says. First, he says about the enemies of the cross, he says their end is destruction. That's a, hor that's a horrifying description. What Paul is doing is he looks beyond this temporary world to the coming judgment of God and says, in the end, they will not have peace and joy in Christ's presence, but destruction. They are not reconciled to God by faith in Christ alone. Now, this could be any group or person that holds that Jesus isn't sufficient for salvation. Those people exist inside and outside the church. That's like, that would be um, a Jesus plus good works, or a Jesus plus baptism, or Jesus plus law keeping. That would be anyone who says Jesus isn't sufficient. Now, the gospel is Jesus plus nothing is everything. That's what the gospel is. You, Jesus. You have Jesus, you have everything. You try to add to Jesus, you don't have anything. It could also be those who just flat out reject Jesus altogether, but the end result is the same. It's an eternity separated from God. Their end is destruction. They're an enemy of the cross. Next, Paul says, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. And that, that is really just two sides of the same coin. Paul says their God is their fleshly desires. What this means is they worship and obey whatever desire comes into their body. That's what happens. Their sinful, prideful, and fleshly desires are what determine their morality and behavior. God himself through Christ isn't their unchanging ultimate standard of right and wrong. 
Right and wrong is simply determined by whatever desire they want to satisfy or express. Now, Paul says this, Paul says this again in Romans 16. Listen to what he says there. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out, to beware. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the teaching which you have been taught. He says, avoid them, for such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. So they're not serving Jesus, they're serving their own desires. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And Paul says here that these enemies of the cross go beyond simply obeying their desires. He says they actually glory in it. They, that their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Now, this has two possible meanings. It could mean that they glory and boast in what they should be ashamed of. That basically they're boasting in something that they know should be, uh, they, they should be ashamed of. And this would be in line with Romans 1, where those mentioned there glory in shameful practices and boast in them as though God did not give them moral or natural law. But secondly, it could also mean that Paul is alluding to their future judgment. And in this sense, on the date they stand before Jesus, when they stand before Jesus on judgment day, the very things they gloried in, Jesus will show them and they will be absolutely ashamed on that day. I think it can mean both at the same time. But the issue is on that day it will be too late. They're, they're, um, on that day it will be too late. Their end will be destruction. But then look what Paul says in summary. He says their minds are set on earthly things. That's the ultimate issue. That's the ultimate issue. As Paul says in Romans 8, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And then listen to this. For the, light, for the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. So that's what he says. They're enemies of the cross because their minds are set on earthly things. The issue is these folks have carnal minds set on their own desires and temporary pleasures with no sense of eternity or the coming judgment. They don't have the mind of Christ who in humility and love laid down his own rights for the good of others. And I just want to point out here one of the greatest lies of our current culture, and here in America anyway, I won't speak for the rest of the world because I don't live in the rest of the world, but one of the greatest lies of our current generation, and Paul I think is addressing it here in Philippians, right here in these few verses, one of the greatest lies of our current generation is that any desire you have must be right and good, and no one has the right to question it. That is a lie. What if I just pop up today with a desire to have an affair on Kelly? Well, I had the desire. I guess that makes it right. Or if I had the desire to abandon my kids. Well, the desire came up. I must be able to express it. No, don't judge me. This is my truth. That is a lie that we all have to come to grips with. That just because some desire arises in you, it does not make it right. We don't, we don't as Christians, obey every desire we have. We bring them under the lordship of Jesus and say, Jesus, you are Lord, and I want my desires, even when they're right or wrong, to be aligned with you. That's the issue. So, but there's one thing here we dare not miss. I want you all to pay attention here. There's one thing you can't miss here. 
Look at the text. Paul says there that he weeps over the enemies of the cross. Look what he says. He says, I've told you before and I've told you again with tears. With tears. Paul has often warned the church and told them about the enemies of the cross with tears. So hear me. Paul was a man of compassion. He was not a man of anger, vitriol, or strife. Paul will rightly defend the gospel and the church from enemies within and without, but he will also pray for them. He will weep for them. He will share Jesus with them out of a heart of love and compassion. That's the issue. We have to, we have to contend with enemies of the cross out of compassion. We beware of them. We don't go along with their line of thinking, but we compassionately share Jesus with them. We love them. Listen to what, Paul, well, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and send rain, sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So be a person of compassion. You have to love your enemies. Remember, they're not, enemy, they're not our enemies. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. We want them to come to know Jesus and submit to Jesus. But then notice how Paul ends. He says, lastly, he says, stand firm and wait for Jesus. Stand firm and wait. So imitate faithful examples. Be, beware of those who are enemies. But then he says, stand firm. Look there at verses 20 through verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So here's the issue. Paul tells us why we don't set our minds on earthly things. Why don't we do that? Because our citizenship is in heaven. That's why we don't do that. That's the contrast. We don't set our minds on earthly things like those who are enemies. We set our minds on our, that, that, we set our minds on heavenly things. So the Philippians, it's important to remember, were Roman citizens. They had all the benefits, blessings, and responsibilities of Roman citizens. But Paul reminds them that in Jesus, they don't live primarily for earthly interests or desires. They belong to Jesus and live for his kingdom. And in the meantime, what do we do? We await our Savior. King Jesus is coming again for his people. Now, that might not be a huge comfort to you because we're not being pressed on all sides like our brothers and sisters in places like Afghanistan and in places like Asia. But in places where Christians are being pressed and persecuted, that is a huge comfort that Jesus will not leave you or forsake you. He is coming again for his people. And when he comes... He is going to transform our bodies, our lowly, broken bodies, into the glory of His resurrected body. And I know that promise means something to some of us that are getting older. It means that on that day we meet Jesus, there'll be no more pain. 
There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more disease. There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more disability. There'll be no more death. We await a Savior who will transform our body like His because death has no power on Him. He holds the keys. And so what do we do? We stand firm. Amen? Be courageous in Christ. Be strengthened in His power. Don't waver. Don't go back to the old covenant. Don't go back to the law. Don't go back to old paganism. Don't walk or imitate those whose end is destruction. Don't shrink back because of the pressures of the world or because of those who would do you harm. Stand firm in the sure and certain hope of Christ's return. That's what we're called to do. Now, as I conclude, I want to leave you with this thought. Paul lived his life settled between several incredible truths. You have to picture it as like Paul pitched his tent and lived in between three or four incredible truths. These few truths shaped everything about him. And those truths were first the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus and the power that entailed, the ascension of Jesus where he sits as Lord, reigning over all, interceding for his people, and the promised return of Jesus. Paul pitched his tent in the middle of those four or five truths. That's where Paul lived. Paul died with, Paul was crucified with Christ at the cross. He died there with him. He was raised with Jesus in his resurrection. Paul lived day by day in the resurrection power of Jesus. Paul understood that Jesus is reigning right now as the resurrected Lord over all the universe. And Paul knew that Jesus was coming again one day to bring the consummation of his salvation and the hope of resurrected life with Christ. Now, Paul lives here. He lives his life in the middle of the cross, the grave, the resurrection, the ascension, and the return of Jesus. And that's the only place that any of you have any hope of standing firm. If you try to build your life on any other foundation, it will be sinking sand. If you try to build it on the comforts of this world, the comforts of our life, good health, good stock market, good economy, if you try to build your life, all of those things will let you down. You have to build your ultimate hope in the middle of those gospel truths. And that's the only place you can stand firm. So Paul's word to us today is imitate those. Imitate those who are godly examples. Beware of those who are enemies. And stand firm in those gospel truths to the end. Let's pray. Father, bless your word as we've heard it today. Go with us now as we leave in a few moments. But Father, we ask right now that you would speak to our hearts as we have a time of invitation. And Lord, we ask that you would work among us now for Jesus' sake. We pray this in Christ's name.